This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The current White House has a very different outlook on America's energy portfolio from the last administration. Climate change drove a lot of the decisions under President Obama. Under President Trump, coal is sacrosanct. So what has that 180-degree turn meant in Colorado? Tomorrow, we'll get the view on renewables. Today, it's coal. Stan Dempsey is head of the Colorado Mining Association, and he recently declared that the, quote, war on coal is over. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Coal mining saw an increase in production last year, both nationwide and in Colorado. That is bucking what had been a trend of declines. There have been a lot of factors working against coal the last few years competition from cheaper natural gas, even renewables, and environmental regulations. In Colorado, a 2010 law mandated the closure of some coal-fired power plants and incentivizes other forms of power. What leads you to say the war on coal is over? Well, I think that when you look at the actions of both the Trump administration and Congress, they very quickly uh, took action to either repeal or um, not go forward with certain regulatory actions in particular um, to, that were intended in our minds to um, slowly or more quickly shut down the coal industry and the use of coal as a source of electricity throughout the country and in Colorado. I imagine you might point to the clean power plan that uh, had its tentacles with the Paris Climate Agreement. What else is on your mind when you think of that regulation? Well, in particular, Congress uh, took action using its authority under the Congressional Review Act to repeal a regulation adopted very late in the Obama administration called the Stream Protection Rule, which was originally intended to address mountaintop removal to access coal reserves in Appalachia, but it had huge effects on um, underground mines using long wall operations. These are Um, various uh, types of coal mining. Exactly. Underground mining where you have a a, a device that uses, it's a long uh, basically saw that goes out and, and accesses the coal underground very efficiently. That Type of mining, though, has some impact potentially on intermittent streams and streams above ground. Um, And that rule could have shut down underground coal mining in Colorado unintentionally. The stream protection rule required mining companies to return nearby waterways to their original condition after mining in the area was finished. The aim was to clean up heavy metals like arsenic, mercury. Uh, Some context here, I think this is important. There are currently six operating coal mines in the state, employing just over 1,100 full-time workers. Uh, That's in a state with a labor force of 3 million. And uh, while production was up last year, the number of coal jobs in Colorado was flat here, and it actually dropped nationwide by about 7%. What do you make of those employment numbers? I don't think anybody should be surprised that with fewer mines that we have fewer employees. But I think what is also something that's occurred is technology and the application of technology making mining more efficient, making mining more safe. There's more automation in mining? Okay. Do you expect there to be any increase in coal jobs in Colorado or is flat in your mind uh, and holding the right direction? 
Well, I certainly think at the beginning we're pleased there haven't been fewer – that there have been fewer job losses. Um, I think that there has been um, more additional contract miners as mines have picked up some production, particular mines. And um, we would hope that though those numbers would grow, particularly when there's more certainty. And I think there is more certainty in the in the fate of the existing mines right now. There are policy changes for sure. But what difference does it make sort of psychologically to have a president who's so bullish on coal? I mean, uh, when you look at coal jobs overall, uh, the the figure of the miner under this administration has become, you know, almost a, a mythic symbol of the working class the president wants to revive. What kind of boost does that give an industry? I really have a couple of answers. And one is a reflection of perhaps a lot of voters, particularly in the Midwest or Pennsylvania, Ohio, that the, the president seemed to attract the attention of when he was running for office, that there was a feeling in America that working people were being ignored um, or that their the, the, the jobs that they had or were hoping to have were fading away and that the president was able to tell a story and, and give people some hope that um, those jobs could be revived and they wouldn't be attacked. I mean, the, 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 their employers wouldn't be under attack through regulatory fiat, for example. And I think the president was able to capture that theme. Um, this election, it surprised me as I came into this job just prior to the election. I'd never heard of people saying the fate of our industry depends on who wins the White House. But the contrasts were stark. Secretary Clinton said, I'm intending to put a lot of coal miners out of, out of their jobs. I mean, she may have been misquoted, but uh, or maybe that's taken out of context versus, as you said, such a strong position that President Trump took on coal. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are assessing what the Trump administration means for energy in Colorado and across the country. Tomorrow, we'll get the view on renewables. Today, it's coal with Stan Dempsey, head of the Colorado Mining Association. We have largely focused on regulation and uh, attitudes towards coal. But, you know, uh, we should say that projections from most economists don't look great for coal in the long term, that other energy sources are really the threat here. The natural gas boom is the elephant in the room to some extent. It's cheaper, it's cleaner, and this fracking boom shows no signs of slowing down. Do you give too much credit to regulation when it's really market forces at play here? Well, you cannot forget or you can't underestimate the impact regulation has had. Um, I certainly acknowledge the fracking boom, but let's remember the fracking boom has really benefited Colorado in seeing a double of oil production, whereas, you know, natural gas drilling on the western slope where it's more expensive has really not grown very much because of the cost of developing that resource. Certainly, um, you know, I think that uh, will there be an expansion of the use of coal? You know, it's the utilities who are making the decisions about the choice of fuels. D driven in part by policy. Oh, I think – Because, I of think, course, in, in no, Colorado, I, voters themselves in exactly. passing a renewable energy standard way back in 2004, which has only grown since, uh, said, we want less coal. We want more renewables. Well, I think, they, I think the voters said they wanted more renewables. I'm, I don't think they said less coal. You can, you can read that – read into that. I but, don't think it's a huge leap to say that – that's a swap that they might like to make. But remember, the renewable energy industry was nowhere the size 
in 2004 that, that it is now. And that was driven by, you know, the, the, the wind industry. When people say wind is now competitive with coal, well, you've got a, a production tax credit that has really propelled uh, the economics of wind. And I think Warren Buffett said it well. He wouldn't be investing in Mid-America Energy Ventures if it hadn't been for the tax credit. So tax policy, regulatory policy, and Colorado is a leader in setting a lot of those policies. And what does that mean for the future of coal in Colorado? I mean, when you look at the policies that voters have set through through the initiative and then, you know, subsequent governors have set to convert coal-fired power plants to natural gas plants, for instance, to boost solar and wind. Is this a, a friendly state to coal or an unfriendly one? I think the state is still friendly to coal. I think people recognize coal's contribution to local economies. I think that the existing mines now all have pretty much a defined marketplace for their coal. Um, the, the, the one mine that um, is, is uh, having increases is finding new markets, short-term contracts, and they're finding markets both internationally and throughout the United States. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that a lot of the market for Colorado coal is not in Colorado. Right. Much of it is abroad. Is that right? Um, I think in the 2016 report, we had half the coal went outside of Colorado. But many, many of the mines we have have de- dedicated markets. Um, the, you know, the Northwest Colorado mines generally support the Craig and Hayden stations. Um, the the mine in Durango supports the cement plant. Of course, coal is a commodity. So similar to oil, it follows the ups and downs of those very broad international markets. Meanwhile, renewable energy is following a cost curve. It's really more akin to technology where it's getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. Uh, how much do you see renewables as an exis- existential threat or just part of the portfolio? I think that's the decision in terms of seeing it as a threat, I think the the people who are have our fate and, and the electric consumer's fate in their hands are both elected officials, regulatory officials, and the folks who own the investor-owned utilities uh, who are making decisions about their fuel choices. And, and Excel is increasingly, for instance, getting more of its power from renewables. They are. And they certainly have the Colorado Energy Plan. And I think their reasoning for that's the um, effort to convert two, uh, two units in Pueblo at the Comanche facility. They're wanting to adopt that as quick as possible so that they can take advantage of the, cre- of the, ta- of the production tax credit. Stan Dempsey, it seems to me that, that part of the future of coal, uh, certainly if laws regulating greenhouse gas emissions eventually get more strict, uh, is in so-called clean coal, the idea of, of creating clean coal technology. My understanding is that's incredibly expensive. The technology has a long way to go. How much is the industry focused on that as its future? I think the industry is focused on it. And um, states like Wyoming um, and even Colorado are, are partnering with companies. I know Tri-State has a project that they're working on up in Wyoming in partnership with the state and other um, partners to try to develop some uh, carbon se- capture and sequestration activities. So I think, um, you know, it's it's it, the question is, is it the mines who are doing the partnering or is it the, the utility operators themselves? At which end? Hmm. Yeah. How much do you think about climate change? Uh, we think we think about it quite a bit. And uh, as an association, uh, we look at all kinds of pieces of legislation and decide if we're going to 
to be active or take positions on those things. I, I guess what I mean is how much do you think of it as, a, as an existential threat, speaking of a second existential threat? You know, I think it's a question of whether how our members are looking at it. And uh, our members have different views on that. And it's kind of played itself out. Um, you know, in the hard rock mining side, we had um, companies that did not want the, the Trump administration to pull out of the Paris Accord. Uh, I have coal companies that who are continuing to have they're thinking, you know, it's evolving on climate change. And there are some companies back in the East that, um, you know, are, are pretty hostile to the issue. So we're following the lead of our members. And it varies among them. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Stan Dempsey, president of the Colorado Mining Association. We talked about how coal fares under the Trump administration. Again, tomorrow, a view on renewables. Artificial intelligence is going to take off big time in the next five years, according to our next guest. She predicts it'll happen both in everyday life, like health care, and in war. Heather Roth is a fellow at the Leverholm Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. She was formerly a Future of War fellow with New America in Washington, D.C. Roth is scheduled to speak this week at the Conference on World Affairs at CU Boulder, known as the Conference on Everything Under the Sun. And this is something of a homecoming for her. CU is where she got her doctorate in political science. And welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ryan. In setting up this interview with you, we noticed something. Your email signature says, sorry for any typos, AI isn't that smart yet. <laughs> um, and it's, It struck me that artificial intelligence is really already here, and perhaps in a lot of ways we just don't realize. I mean, is that right? What are some examples of AI that many people already rely on? Yeah, I mean, I think we rely on artificial intelligence or AI in a, in a variety of areas in our life. Um, you know, when you think about uh, your credit card um, and, and if you start to travel and you use your credit card someplace and you get a fraud alert and they think, oh, is it really you? Um, that's because your spending pattern um, is now out of the norm and an, an, and an artificial intelligent agent has spotted that anomaly in the pattern and is alerting you to a possible fraud alert. So um, things like that. We also have artificial intelligence already being deployed in predictive policing in departments all over the country. We have artificial intelligence applications um, ranking the likelihood of recidivism rates um, for parolees. We have artificial intelligence uh, using uh, in, in medical diagnoses, as well as um, even some AI lawyers out there figuring out how to uh, how to beat your traffic tickets. What is predictive policing? That sounds so minority report. <laughs> well, it's sort of. Um, Minority report would would be more like, you know, are you actually going to commit the crime and, you know, get that mine crime out of the way first? But um, the predictive policing stuff is is really about where you are. You think uh, crime is likely to occur in a physical and a geographical location. And be, based on those predictions, uh, police departments then send more assets or more officers to those areas to to police or to kind of uh, be be visible to either arrest people while they're committing the crime or to deter a crime from occurring. Hmm. It's sort of their version of the credit card alert. In other words, there's an algorithm, there is some sort of artificial intelligence that's making an analysis and then alerting them to, to deploy resources. I'm not going to look at my credit card the same way again. <laughs> um, when, when, when you talk about an explosion in AI in the next five years, uh, you, you really mean that that's 
a lot of different aspects of our lives. Let's talk day to day. Like, give me a picture of what you think people will start seeing. Well, I mean, we already have artificial intelligence um, agents, you know, figuring out our shopping habits, our likes and our dislikes, uh, whether or not, you know, Netflix is going to give you a new uh, a new show that's popped up that it thinks you're going to like based on your viewing habits. And so we have these applications kind of already floating all around us. We just don't think of them as artificial intelligence. And I think the explosion is really going to come when we start to see that artificial intelligence applications are going to be really just kind of um, ramping up all the, all the way around us. Everything from how we get our jobs to how we find our mates to whether or not we get um, a loan application approved to um, whether or not um, the medical diagnoses coming from um, what we would think is of our doctor is actually an artificial intelligent agent who's reading, you know, your 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 blood work or is reading uh, your X-rays and things like this, and and pushing that information to a human doctor to then t- to then take over. So you know, I think again, everything from from those types of applications, which are pretty much software based, to even applications in robotics, when we start looking at robotics and AI as AI is a physical manifestation in a robot, um, doing everything from, you know, harvesting our crops to building roads to autonomous cars. I think what we really going to see is that artificial intelligence in, in its wide variety of uses is going to be everywhere. There are so many ethical issues to unpack in what you just told us. I mean, you talk about artificial intelligence helping make decisions about loan applications, or Mm -hmm. my blood work, maybe diagnosing Mm -hmm. a tumor. Mm -hmm. There are questions of equity there. There are questions of malfeasance and liability. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is this a situation where the technology may come before the laws are addressed, are written, and the ethical questions are answered? Yes, (laughs) Yes, is the short answer to that. I mean, the technology moves so quickly, right? We, I mean, when you look at the the rate at um, patents related to artificial intelligence, uh, they're just skyrocketing um, in various various areas. Um, and so, when you when you realize that uh, the law doesn't really understand yet how to get its mind around, you know, are we monitoring the algorithm? Are we monitoring the algorithm plus the data set that the algorithm is trained on? Are we monitoring or regulating the kind of consequences or effects of those things? And you know, there's there's so many different kind of types of ways of regulation that we really need um, kind of you know federal commissions or uh, things like this to to start questioning uh, exactly what it is we're trying to regulate and how we're going to regulate it. Uh, we we have ample evidence that uh, various types of artificial intelligence applications are inherently biased. They're racist. Um, they you know kind of prop up structural injustices. So I think that this is uh, and we also don't really have the ability to scrutinize them at this point in time, both from a technology standpoint, but also from just an intellectual property standpoint. Well, this is fascinating because if the if the person doing the inputting and if mm-hmm. the data, the likes and the dislikes that artificial intelligence is taking in to create these algorithms, if the input is racist or if it's overwhelmingly white or if it's overwhelmingly male, all of that mm-hmm. you're saying could be reflected in the behavior of the artificial intelligence and perhaps the robots 
that operate on them. Exactly. So right now what we have is artificial intelligence, what we call a narrow AI, which is it's not really smart, right? When we think it's smart, we th- when we say it's smart, we say it's good at one thing. It's, it's really good at one thing. Um, but it doesn't do a lot of different things very well. So it has kind of a, a one, one-shot application. It's a bit of a savant. Um, and so in that respect, whatever you put in to train it on is exactly how it's going to think about those things. Um, so, you know, if you have a large data set of, of faces, for instance, uh, a good friend of mine over at MIT Media Lab uh, by the name of Joy Bulimwini you know, has has really done some amazing work on facial recognition software and, and artificial intelligence and how the training sets that have been used, the faces on those training sets that have been used have been, you know, about 75% male and about 80% pale. Um, and what that hap- and what happens in those instances is those facial recognition software systems cannot adequately identify people of color and Actually, and they have a very significant and high error rate, almost 30% in some instances, of uh, trying to identify women of color. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the future of artificial intelligence. And really, it's it's very robust present as well. Um, this is a subject that will be tackled at the Conference on World Affairs this week at CU Boulder. Heather Roth is an expert on artificial intelligence, uh, specifically as it relates as well to warfare, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. And uh, she says that essentially in the next five years, we're really going to see an explosion of AI in our lives that could be in diagnosing our health conditions. Uh, it might be, as she says, loan application approval. But the, the really eye-popping potential here is in warfare. In general, what do you expect will change in the ways wars are fought? Well, I think in general what we're going to see is the the pace, the, the decision-making pace increase so astronomically, right? It's going to shorten the decision loop. So wars are going to, you know, the kind of interactions between systems are going to be so fast. You, you mean um, decisions about whether to launch a bomb or a missile or something? Right. So, I mean, you can think about the way in which we fight war now, right, which is uh, there's a long logistics trail. Um, You know, there's a lot of planning that goes into various operations. Um, You need to move things around um, into a a war zone. And so and there's a lot of people that that need to um, are are involved in intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance in order to get good intelligence to then have good military plans. And what we're seeing now is that with more with with additional capability with sensors and in and ISR capabilities, those intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, we have so much data, we have so many feeds coming through. So you look at just the hundreds and thousands of hours of of drone footage um, from you know MQ9 Reapers or Predator drones that you know a human analyst just can't actually go through. And so we're going to be deploying AIs to to um, do that video analysis and to find anomalous behaviors. We're going to then feed that into um, ISR type applications and and analysis and and operational planning. We're going to use artificial intelligence to war game and simulate various courses of action. We're going to push all of this so fast and we're going to deploy systems that are autonomous, right? That can select and engage um, targets without human intervention and so when you start thinking about kind of the, the confluence of all of these different 
um, parts of the war machine happening in an automated or an autonomous fashion, um, the decision cycles and the way you can deploy force rapidly increases. And I think this is why you've said there will be less of an off-ramp. There'll be yes. l- less of an opportunity to go, hey, everyone, cool your jets. Let's think about this. Let cooler heads prevail. Exactly. I think what it does is it really limits the ability for diplomacy to have its day. Um, it also limits the ability for, you know, general officers and and, and, and other high-ranking officers to to go to their, you know, their counterparts and say, hey, maybe we need to talk about what's going on here. Um, that kind of human element of, of saying, you know, that was a mistake or that was an accidental uh, border incident um, will be very difficult to walk back from when my autonomous systems trigger your autonomous systems. You can kind of think of this like uh, the 2010 flash crash um, with the stock market where trading algorithms rapidly, um, you know, they just went back and forth in such a, a short, you know, amount of you know, seconds. And, you know, m- hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars were lost in those transactions um, because of that kind of back and forth between two AIs trading without any knowledge of, you know, well, that's not really how this goes. Mm-hmm. Or or, or even the, the, the famous book on Amazon that, you know, within about a day went from something like $13 to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because of just the way the algorithms were set about, you know, well, if, if one if one algorithm predicts this increase, then increase the price this much. And it just, it just escalated. And became like and so totally irrational. It, yeah. I mean, exactly. So just before the presidential election, you wrote an article for Wired called The Next President Will Decide the Fate of Killer Robots in the Future. Yes future of war. And in this article, you write, it sounds like science fiction to think that a president will have to wrestle with the idea of robots outside of direct human control taking a combat role, but that is where the technology is headed. Just as we see the increasing use and acceptance of driverless cars, the same thing is playing out in the realm of war. So what is the future under this current administration, as you see it, in planning for killer robots. Um, that sounds so science fiction. And, and, <laughs> and can we expect an arms race in, in this arena? Yeah. So, I mean, when President Trump came into office, uh, there was a review of existing DOD policy of the Department of Defense policy on autonomy and autonomous weapon systems. That review basically says that um, an autonomous weapon system is a system that can select and engage targets without the intervention of a human operator. And if the DOD were to go into a formal acquisition process to acquire those those types of weapons, it would require the signatures of three undersecretaries of defense to do that. Um, that's pretty much all the policy really says. It doesn't say that it's a moratorium or a ban or anything like that. It just says it needs additional authority to do that, to, to acquire formally, not to develop, not to research, um, but to formally go through an acquisition process. That... Um, that directive was kind of slotted to be reviewed in 2012, or sorry, it came out in 2012, it was slotted to be reviewed in 2017. And when the president came into office, that review was already going underway. Um, it was kind of, it kind of overlapped between um, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And that directive was pretty much just signed on again as, as it stood. So there's been no major changes from the, the DOD side of things. But what I can say is that um, what we see signaling now coming out of uh, at least the United States' perspective 
um, is really what we're seeing happening this week in the United Nations at the Convention on Conventional Weapons, huh. uh, which regulates, you know, indiscriminate indiscriminate weapons that cause superfluous injury or suffering. And um, the meetings that are happening this week in Geneva, um, it's called a group of governmental experts where all of the signatory states are, are meeting to discuss lethal autonomous weapon systems. The United States' position this week has pretty much been, we do not want to ban, we do not want to, preemptive, to preemptively ban these weapons. Um, in fact, we, we think that there is a lot of utility to be found and efficacy. They cite things like it could lower civilian casualties, that it could be more discriminate, that it could lower even the costs of, um, you know, that you won't have as many armed uh, soldiers or airmen or, or marines or sailors in, in, an, in, a, in a battle space. So that's going to save human lives on both sides. Also lower costs, right? Because when you don't have as many people that you need to to get over there on a logistics side, that's going to lower costs. As well as, if you think about this, it's going to lower costs in terms of like veterans affairs and veterans benefits. Because if robots are taking over, I don't need to actually send them to the VA for health care. So um, they've been citing a bunch of, of you know, the bonuses of artificial intelligence and weapons. Um, and so I, I don't see the U.S. backing down from from pursuing these weapons anytime soon. Um, we have ample evidence from all of the services um, that they are rapidly um, trying to figure out how to acquire and use and inform the like, concepts of operations of how to use these systems in conflict. And we also have ample re- um, evidence that you know, near-peer states like Russia and China um, are going full hog as well um, in developing their own systems. And so there is, um, I would say, already afoot an arms race within AI and, and within autonomous weapon systems globally. I mean, it's not just the major powers, but South Korea, Israel, um, the, these these systems are coming. You raise all sorts of issues there, too, with the future of employment, and not just in the military, but in all other sorts of industries. I mean, there's been a Mm -hmm. lot of talk about uh, whether truckers would be replaced with uh, driverless vehicles. I I guess to wrap up, Heather Roth, as an expert in artificial intelligence, do you fear for the future or do you look forward to it? Or or which (laughs) which speaks more strongly to you? (laughs) I'm a cautious optimist. Um, I would say that you know we need to we need to look at the future with really clear, rational kind of we see what's coming. Don't don't think that AI is some sort of you know magical creation that's going to solve all of our problems. In fact, it can create a host of problems. Um, but it also has very beneficial applications in other areas. And so we have to take a very clear-eyed view of of what we're what we're going to allow into our societies um, from an automated and an artificial intelligence perspective, but also, you know, really be cautious about how um, these systems can really question, you know, make us question what it means to be a human and the the kind of values that we hold. Will you have a home robot in the next five years before we go? I will not, but I did buy my parents an an Alexa for for their birthdays. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Heather Roth, fellow at the Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. She was formerly a Future of War fellow with New America in Washington, D.C. She's scheduled to speak this week at the Conference on World Affairs at CU Boulder. It is actually at CU where she received her Ph.D. in political science. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They may be as small as a beer can or as big as a satellite. Products that are made in Colorado could be caught up in the big international trade battles now underway. For a deeper look at what President Trump's policies could mean here, I'm joined by Connor Murphy of Colorado's Office of Economic Development. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Let's start with the caveat that this is all just talk right now. The tariffs on both sides are proposed but haven't taken effect. Uh, Let's unpack first what's going on with China. So uh, the tariffs proposed by President Trump came first. What Colorado businesses would be affected by those? Sure, sure, sure. So, um... Right. As you said, it's all kind of talk right now. It's proposed tariffs, um, except for kind of the worldwide steel and aluminum tariffs that are more so going through. Indeed. Um, and it's it's difficult really to pinpoint specific companies that really will be affected. But what we've done at our office is we've really looked into goods categories, general goods categories that are proposed to have either import tariffs, so tariffs on goods coming from China, yeah. or retaliatory tariffs from China on exports into the country. And what stands out? So what really stands out is on the import side of things for Colorado are steel and aluminum, as I'd mentioned, that is about 21% of Colorado's steel and aluminum imports come from China. Um, After that, we have electrical equipment. Uh, That's anything from components and TVs to sound equipment, anything of the like, and then industrial machinery. So Computer components are included in there up to large manufacturing equipment and so on. So these three categories. And the idea there is that these might not be finished products, but components of things that maybe get finished here. Correct. Yes. So by and large, these are primary inputs. So that means it's it's really just one piece of the puzzle of creating the entire good. Um, and so, for example, you know, one good that's that's produced here by the Ball Corporation up in Broomfield is aluminum cans. Yeah. Um, they actually produce about 40% of aluminum cans in the United States, um, which is something I think a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with. But really what happens there is that as it goes, the price of aluminum goes up, the price of aluminum can might go up. And as the price of an aluminum can might go up, the price of goods that come in aluminum cans might go up. So, you know, you could even end up seeing increased costs of, of soda or beer. Uh, which would hit Coloradans, I suppose, especially <laughs> hard. Um, c- can you speak to any more of the finished products that might be affected? Um, so sure, sure. So uh, going into maybe renewable energy, for example, okay. um, the also aluminum and steel goes into the production of, say, wind turbines. Uh, the company Vestas out of Colorado as well produces yeah. a lot of these. And certainly, um, I, I can't speak for how much of their material imports come from China, but a disruption in, in aluminum and steel supply chains would certainly affect the industry. So uh, Trump sent the first volley and then the Chinese volleyed back. Mm-hmm. And what do you see there? Um, so really, at least as far as like st- statistical significance goes for Colorado companies, the impacts of the potential import tariffs are stronger than those of the export uh-huh. tariffs from China. Um, that is at least based off of what the Chinese Ministry of Commerce has proposed. Right. And that's there's a, really there's just, a list. And, and what stands out on it? Um, really what stands out on those is aluminum comes up again, aluminum scrap. Okay. Um, and then really after that, we have chemical products and plastics um, and then also aircraft parts. And, and you say this is going to be disproportionately 
hitting Colorado. Um, if these go I would, into it, I think that the what the data shows is that the imports of Chinese goods will more significantly impact Colorado industry than the export, simply because for one, our export profile to China is much smaller. But also because the goods that the Chinese are targeting are not necessarily those that Colorado produces overwhelmingly. Okay. So, for example, about uh, among the goods that China has targeted, less than one percent of those are exported by Colorado to China. Got it. Any surprises in in this? Um, you know, nothing too surprising. In our office, we we really are are learning to keep an open mind about what what happens because. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty happening right now in, in the world of international trade. And in trying to presuppose what is going to develop, we don't think that there really is anything good that comes out of that. So it's it's really just trying to adjust as well as possible as developments come through. What about intellectual property? Okay, so there's the idea of, of hard and, and fast products. And then mm-hmm. there's the idea of the big idea behind them and whether China is playing fair there. Right, right. So, um, so what what the finding by the U.S. Trade Representative? They call it like the Section three hundred one finding. Uh, it's a big hundred plus page document. And what they did is they determined, or they claimed that China partakes in what they refer to as a technology transfer regime. And this is based off of their own research and interviews with American industry groups and American companies operating in China. Um, from from our point of view, we don't necessarily have an opinion of whether or not China is partaking in this. But the the idea is that if any Colorado companies are subject to loss of their intellectual property, therefore lose a competitive advantage, then I, I think that addressing this issue is, is crucial. Is there an example of that you might cite? Um, of, of intellectual property being yeah. being lost? Um, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay. But, yeah. But a concern nonetheless. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about the potential effect of a trade battle on Colorado companies. My guest is Connor Murphy of Colorado's Office of Economic Development. I do want to move to NAFTA before we go, the Mm -hmm. North American Free Trade Agreement between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Canada and Mexico are Colorado's biggest trading partners. Uh, We heard just yesterday from an official at the State Agriculture Department that some Mexican companies are holding off on buying agricultural products because things are so uncertain. What do you see on on industry's side of Uh things as it relates to NAFTA? Um, Well, there certainly is that uncertainty. And and I think that at least as far as we see it is a lot of the businesses operating in Colorado, around the U.S. and around the world, they have built their business models around the assumption that there is going to be this free and open marketplace and that they can, you know, work across borders relatively seamlessly. And even the perception that that might go away is is creating reluctance among businesses. It's not necessarily stopping international commerce or commerce with our NAFTA partners, um, but there certainly is a lot of uncertainty, I would say, in in, in the industry. I haven't heard any specific examples of deals not going through, for example, due to that uncertainty. But there is worry that supply chains will be disrupted. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. It's Connor Murphy, advisor to Governor John Hickenlooper and the state's chief liaison for foreign economic affairs. And now let's remember World War II veteran Joe Hoberman, who died last month at the age of 92. We spoke with him last fall, shortly after he'd been awarded France's Legion of Honor medal, one of many he was proud to display. 
Uh, this is a combat infantry badge. Uh, this is, signifies infantry. And these are just kind of, oh, I don't know, that's a president's citation for the division. Hoberman, a former just, private, uh, lived in Loveland and joined the Army in February 1944. He was 18 and graduated high school early to enlist. I went to summer school and took extra classes so that I didn't have to wait until June. He says he was driven by patriotism. I wanted to go. We all wanted to go. Hoberman fought in the Battle of the Bulge, one of the Second World War's deadliest battles, and he stayed in Europe after the war to help with rebuilding efforts. He took an honor flight to Washington, D.C. in 2014, Seeing row after row of soldiers' graves at Arlington National Cemetery was overwhelming. And that's when a woman, sitting next to him, told him he might have survivor's guilt. And that was a life changer. I I felt almost at ease with myself because it wasn't my fault that that I made it. It was, uh, I, I guess, just God's wish. I don't know. Every night, Joe Hoberman said a prayer for those who didn't make it until his own death last month at 92. His family told us that Hoberman received a military honors ceremony with a three-volley salute. As Colorado wrestles with the opioid epidemic, use of another dangerous illegal drug, methamphetamine, is surging. You can see the effects all around, from overdoses to treatment to arrests. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, meth has had a stubborn presence in Colorado and adds another hurdle to solving the opioid crisis. At a drug treatment center in Denver, Counselor Melissa McConnell huddles around a computer screen with her client, Sarah Florence. Just look where you were. Look where you were in November and look where you are in March. Treatment here uses medications like methadone and counseling. On the screen, the pair look at Florence's urinalysis results. Last fall, it lit up like a Christmas tree. Now it's all clean. Florence says she stopped using heroin in the fall She stopped using meth January 2nd. Yeah, I got pretty bad on it. I was shooting it, um, smoking it, snorting it. It just made me feel like crap, you know. But I still did it. It just makes no sense, you know. It's just really addicting. She says meth is particularly insidious because it's cheap and readily available. How common is it now? I mean, is there... Very common. Everybody does it. State drug overdose numbers confirm that trend. Meth was found in the systems of 280 Coloradans who died of overdoses in 2017, up sharply from the year before. Denise Vincioni directs the Denver Recovery Group. She says many who come to the treatment center are using multiple drugs, along with meth. We're still seeing a a rampant use of methamphetamine, very difficult to treat outpatient. It decreases their chances of of the continued sustained recovery. Admissions for meth to the state's largest treatment facility, the now-closed Arapahoe House, almost doubled from 2013 to 2017. Vincioni says once users mainly seem to stick to one drug, opioid pills or heroin or cocaine. 
Now Vincioni says they're using those along with meth. Now we're seeing it's, it's just almost going hand in hand. Counselor Melissa McConnell thinks those struggling with an opioid addiction are turning to heroin or meth or both. Within the last few years, it seems to be more and more drugs are circulating together. People come in, they start to get off the opiates, but their meth use increases. And that meth is mainly coming from one direction, south. I would say almost 100 percent of our Methamphetamine comes from Mexico. That's Tom Gorman. He's one of the region's leading experts on the drug trade with the Rocky Mountain High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. Gorman says, contrary to popular belief, most meth in Colorado is not cooked up in home labs. Gorman says those were shut down years ago. Now the supply is coming via the freeways from Mexico. We're getting a lot of it from Southern California up this way, and we're getting some from Phoenix. The impact shows up in police statistics. In Denver, for example, arrests for possession of meth nearly tripled last year compared to 2013. Gorman says meth may have been overshadowed by opioids and marijuana in Colorado in recent years, but it's remained stubbornly persistent. We've had a meth problem in this area for a long time. So uh, are we having more people use meth? Maybe, but it's always been our number one problem. At the Denver Recovery Group, Sarah Florence can tell you all about the dangers of meth. A mother of three, she's now 36. At 15, her parents gave her pain pills for a toothache. She got hooked. I grew up around it. You know, it was around me, my environment. You know, both my parents were addicts. And so, you know, it was kind of rough not to be one. Those troubles eventually led to heroin and eight years struggling with meth. Florence says she hit bottom when she got arrested after stealing a Subaru in Lakewood. I was driving a stolen car. I was homeless and had nowhere to live and uh, driving a stolen vehicle. I was sleeping in it and got aggravated motor vehicle theft. That led her to drug court and eventually here for recovery. She and her counselor, Melissa McConnell, are clearly happy with her progress. After seeing her drug tests come back clean, McConnell gives Florence a big hug. Florence says life is improving. It's just so much better quality life now that I'm not doing any of anything, you know. Um, this is the cleanest I've been since I was 15 years old. Counselors say it's much more difficult to treat people with multiple addictions. And in a state woefully short of treatment options, that's a worrisome trend indeed. I'm John Daly, CPR News. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the Conference on World Affairs is back at CU Boulder this week for its 70th year. It's been called the Conference on Everything Conceivable. One look at this year's schedule and you'll see why. There are panels on climate change, Islam, aging, fake news, and one titled Immigration Moving Stories. That one will feature personal stories of relocation, including from singer-songwriter and Colorado native Lisa Marie Simmons. Simmons grew up singing with the Boulder Youth Choir and has traveled the world studying and performing music, living in places such as Amsterdam, Costa Rica, and St. Martin. She now calls Italy home. Here she is with her neo-folk project, Hippie Tendencies. This is Woke Up. Woke up this morning, got the sun that's shining out from inside. Woke up and knew if I ain't in the heat. Behind. 
watching it fade in the rearview mirror. Everything just got clearer. Suddenly I get it as the clouds come rolling in. Let it. Hippie Tendencies, featuring vocals by Lisa Marie Simmons. She's a speaker at the 70th Annual Conference on World Affairs this week at CU Boulder. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.